You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash twofertea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is John Mullen. John is a professor of English literature at University College London. He's a regular TV and radio broadcaster and a literary journalist. John is the author of a number of books, including Sentiment and Sociability, The Language of Feeling in the 18th Century, How Novels Work, Anonymity, A Secret History of English Literature, and The Artful Dickens. And I'm going to talk to John today about his work on Jane Austen and his book, What Matters in Jane Austen. And full disclosure for his sins, John was also my PhD supervisor (laughs) when I was doing my PhD at uh, Jesus College Cambridge back in the early 1990s. And um, is uh, really, I think, well, definitely the um, English literature academic whom I most admire and one of the most um, beautifully um, lucid writers and speakers I know of. So it's a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you again after all these years, John. Well, Welcome. Thank you very much. Lucid is good. That is an aspiration that I have, certainly. Um, very kind of you to say so. It's a really rare quality among academics. Well, I like to think it's a quality that in Britain, at least, is becoming a little less rare or has become a little less rare over recent years. I I mean, I'm not sure that the quest for lucidity has become particularly popular in North America yet amongst academics. But I think obscurity used to be admired and valued by literary academics a bit more in the 80s and 90s than it now is. I hope so anyway. I Yes, I, I hope so too. This is a particular bugbear of mine. And um, I wrote an article on this, which I'll, I'll link in the show notes. Um, and basically, uh, you are the exact opposite of the academic whom I'm describing in that article. <laughs> okay, I'll read it. I'll read it. <laughs> With pleasure then. <laughs> um, it's called Writing Wrongs, oh, right. um, the article. So um, I'm going to talk to you about your book on Jane Austen. And as I often do with um, writers, I'm going to begin by um, reading a small passage from your book. Um, But in this case, I'm going to supplement it with a brief passage from Austen's work, which illustrates some of what you're talking about. Um, So this is from the introduction to your book, and you are... um, just before this passage, you're talking about the fact that Austin, um, almost uniquely among well-known writers of that period, had um, no, basically no contact with the 
literary world with other well-known writers. The closest she got to that was um, that Walter Scott reviewed, um, I can't remember Emma. which. He reviewed uh, Emma. I think Emma. But he wrote, right. when he did that, he, he also uh, discussed uh, two of her previous novels as well. So it was, yes. it was a sort of roundup review, but it was mostly about Emma. Yes, he did a little bit of overview, but he didn't men- doesn't mention Mansfield Park, no, I think, right. in the review. Right. Um, but unlike almost almost everyone else who has survived to posterity, she didn't. She didn't. She wasn't part of a literary coterie or clique, or even really had correspondence with um, other writers. You write Jane Austen's obscurity among her contemporaries is all the more striking when one considers her technical audacity. There was nothing so surprising about the fact that she wrote novels. There was something miraculous about the fact that she wrote novels whose narrative sophistication and brilliance of dialogue were unprecedented in English fiction. She introduced free, indirect style to English fiction, filtering her plots um, through the consciousness of her characters. She perfected fictional idiolect, fashioning habits of speaking for even minor characters that rendered them utterly singular. She managed all this with extraordinary self-confidence and apparently without the advice or expert engagement of any other accomplished writer. It might be a wrench to think of Austen, the conservative literary genius in a revolutionary age, as an experimental writer, but such she was. This has nothing to do with her subject matter. Indeed, provide some bare plot summaries of her novels, and they can be made to sound rather less daring than those of contemporaries, such as Mariah Edgeworth or Mary Brunton. Her brilliance is in the style, not the content. Even when it comes to her characters, her success is a matter of formal daring as much as psychological insight. We hear their ways of thinking because of Austen's tricks of dialogue. Their peculiar views of the world are brought to life by her narrative skills. Virginia Woolf, a reader completely alive to Austen's fictional intelligence, said that of all the great writers, she is the most difficult to catch in the act of greatness. Woolf meant that it was nearly impossible to take a single scene or single paragraph as an epitome of that greatness. The apparent modesty of Austen's dramas is, though, only apparent. Look closely, and the minute interconnectedness of her novels is a bravura achievement. This interconnectedness is the reason why, when you reread her novels, you have the experience of suddenly noticing some crucial detail that you have never noticed before, and realising how demanding she is of your attention. And when you do notice things... It is as if Austin is setting puzzles or inviting you to notice little tricks which do justice to the small, important complications of life. The apparently trivial pursuit of the, of, um, the answers to quiz questions about Austin invariably reveals the intricate machinery of her fiction. I, I skipped over a little bit and um, um, a, cu- a couple of sections there. So I think a good place to begin would be with um, Austin's um, stylistic innovations and particularly with um, 
free indirect style, and then maybe with uh, idiolects, which I know you've got a lot to say about. Um, and I'm going to read a, a very short passage from Persuasion, which um, it's perhaps not the subtlest example of this, um, this technique, but I think it's a very clear and obvious um, example of the way in which she describes things um, through the eyes of her characters rather than as an omniscient author. So at this particular moment, um, Anne Elliot's old lover, Frederick Wentworth, who has uh, returned to town um, and who she has met after an eight-year gap, um, she is talking to her sister, her sister who's very thoughtless and often quite callous in her thoughtlessness. Um, uh, uh, about him, and this is what her sister says. Captain Wentworth is not very gallant by you, Anne, though he was so attentive to me. Henrietta asked him what he thought of you when they went away, and he said, you were so altered, he should not have known you again. Mary had no feelings to make her respect her sisters in a common way, but she was perfectly unsuspicious of being inflicting any peculiar wound altered beyond his knowledge, and fully submitted in silent, deep mortification. Doubtless it was so, and she could take no revenge, for he was not altered, or not for the worst, or not for the worse. She had already acknowledged it to herself, and she could not think differently, let him think of her as he would. No, the years which had destroyed her youth and bloom had only given him a more glowing, manly, open look, in no respect lessening his personal advantages. She had seen the same Frederick Wentworth, so altered that he should not have known her again. These were words which could not but dwell with her. Yet she soon began to rejoice that she had heard them. They were of sobering tendency. They allayed agitation. They composed, and consequently, must make her happier. Frederick Wentworth had used such words, or something like them, but without an idea that they would be carried round to her, he had thought her wretchedly altered, and in the first moment of appeal had spoken as he felt. He had not forgiven Anne Elliot. She had used him ill, deserted and disappointed him, and worse, she had shown a feebleness of character in doing so, which his own decided, confident temper could not endure. She had given him up to oblige others. It had been the effect of over-persuasion. It had been weakness and timidity. He had been most warmly attached to her, and had never seen a woman since whom he thought her equal. Except for some natural sensation of curiosity, he had no desire of meeting her again. Her power with him was gone forever. Um... Okay, so I thought that might be a good. It's a good place bit, no doubt about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you, for our listeners, you could have carried on. Just leave me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, reading your book has made me want to um, reread all of the Austen novels now. Good. <laughs> um, I think it will be about my third or fourth rereading as well, but they don't get old. No. Um, so talk talk a little bit for listeners about 
um, how she uses uh, that free indirect style. Right. Well, I didn't, I, the, the listeners should know that I didn't know you were going to choose this passage. So, <laughs> so it's a good tech. <laughs> um, all sorts of extraordinary things are going on in it. But I suppose the most striking thing is that, you know, um, Anne is told this thing by her utterly inconsiderate sister Mary. And it's quite important, you know, whenever you choose a little sort of sliver out of Austin, there are things going on in plot terms as well as in, uh, as well as psychologically and stylistically. Um, Contrary to, I think, what people sometimes assume, I think she's a novelist who is, uh, plots quite densely. So one of the points of this exchange with her sister is that her sister was away at school when Anne, eight years earlier, had her courtship with Captain Wentworth. So she has no idea that she's saying anything quite as cruel as it is. I mean, <laughs> although she should know that um, it's, it's, it's hardly a very um, cheering thing to be told. Um, you're 27 and you're sort of dead, dead in the water. But anyway, so much altered, he wouldn't have known you again. Um, and, and, and what the, you know, what the narrative does is it, is it, as so often in persuasion, takes up the, the story, sees the world through Anne's, we might say through Anne's eyes, but sort of through her mind, through her consciousness. And, she essentially is trying to persuade herself that actually she's doing something very natural, but um, in one way, which is to persuade herself. But it's actually a good thing <laughs> that he doesn't fancy her anymore. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a good thing. I'm so pleased. <laughs> but, but because it's Austin, you can see absolutely the logic of this, the logic of it, because she is... Um, you know, deep mortification. She is a self-mortifying character in many ways. Um, And she is responding uh, to Captain Wentworth's reappearance by trying um, trying to smother her own feelings, trying to smother her own still completely sort of burning love for him. So she's got to convince herself because she is you know, what we call a good person, she's got to convince herself that there's no hope. Um, and this is the sort of psychological paradox of the at least the first part of the passage that you read, Iona. But she's, um, you know, it's a, it's a complicated reaction. Austin is stylistically brilliant, but psychologically complicated. And Anne is trying to persuade herself, persuasion being the sort of activity that she, she, you know, is is so important throughout the novel. She's trying to persuade herself that um, she should be pleased that he's not interested in her anymore and that this evidently doomed romance is, is all over. And she's trying to stop herself living in hope, you know, and... That's a sort of self-punishing thing, um, and you, there's a there's a great, but but it but it's not an irrational thing. There's a great 
a modal verb you use, which Jane Austen makes a wonderful use of when she's doing free indirect style, must. It mm. must. Can you read again <laughs> what it says? It must make her. What, what is it that it uh, says? Yes. Um, oh, yes. These were words which could not but dwell with her. Yet soon she began to rejoice that she had heard them. They were of sobering tendency. They allayed agitation. They composed and consequently must make her happier. Yeah, they must make her happier. And in that little simple moment, you can hear, you can hear the pressure of her thoughts, of her consciousness. They must make her happy. Yes, must, must, because I say so. And it's nothing to do with, you know, Jane Austen's not present at all in that. Anne Elliot's uh, wishes are in control of the narrative. And it's one of those little signs of this technique, which Austen, which, which basically did not exist before Austen got hold of it. And where you started this session, Anna, talking about how um, she was unusual in not belonging to any literary group and not corresponding with other writers. You know, most writers who invent clever new technical things spend their time discussing them with their, their peers <laughs> and sometimes boasting about them even. Um, but Jane Austen had nobody to do that with. She did it on her own and she, she pioneered this extraordinary technique of letting the narrative take on the the thoughts and feelings and crucially delusions as well of one or other of the characters and very much of persuasion is narrated although it's narrated in third person apparently by Jane Austen it's narrated from Anne's point of view and the interesting thing is Anne is often sort of wrong about things not morally wrong but sort of factually wrong um and at, at the end i mean just to finish at the end of the passage you read austin does this other does this extraordinary thing which is just for a little bit she takes you away from anne who's almost always present in the novel but very it's very unusual occasion she takes as it were, the camera goes off, pans away, and we get Captain Wentworth talking to his sister, Mrs. Croft, and um, he's talking about the fact that he's looking for a wife, and he's pretending that, you know, he's very easy about who it should be. Um, he says a great thing, which I think you missed out, <laughs> which I think many uh, are sort of, um, many uh, a young man has thought since, um, or perhaps should have thought, which is, he says, there are two things he's looking for in a woman. Um, a strong mind and sweetness of manner. The implication being yes. is you quite <laughs> often get one, but you very rarely get both. Um, <laughs> yes. And also, it's, it's although Mrs. Croft doesn't understand this, the point of it is that he now thinks that Anne Elliot didn't have a strong mind. She didn't stand up to those particularly... Mm -hmm her sort of advisor, Lady Russell, who said, no, don't marry him. It's a bad idea. Um, but, but, then, but it takes you into this conversation. I mean, it briefly takes you into his mind. And it's the only time in the whole novel it does it. And, and when Austin does it, she takes you in free and direct style to reflect his thoughts this time. 
And she ends the chapter and that extraordinary passage with a statement which is not true. She says, it says in Mrs. Captain Wentworth's thoughts, her power with him was gone forever. And that's the last thing you're told about Captain Wentworth. And, you know, spoiler alert, (laughs) um, (laughs) but I think any astute reader should be guessing this, you know, from very early on. It's completely untrue. Her power with him is not gone forever at all. It turns out to be stronger than ever, actually. Um, but, you know, it's, a, it's, it's such a quiet piece of word you used much earlier, audacity, to end the chapter with a sentence which is the opposite of the truth. And yet no indication actually, at all that, that, you know, the first time reader has to discern this. <laughs> no indication at all that it's the case. Actually, it's not the end of the chapter. Oh, right. So I ended my reading there, but there's a couple more uh, paragraphs. Um, I'll read them, actually. Okay. Um, it was now his object to marry. He was rich and being turned on shore, fully intended to settle as soon as he could be properly tempted. Actually looking around, ready to fall in love with all the speed which a clear head and a quick taste could allow. He had a heart for either of the Miss Musgroves, if they could catch it. A heart, in short, for any pleasing young woman who came in his way, excepting Anne Elliot. This was his only secret exception when he said to his sister, in answer to her suppositions, Yes, here I am, Sophia, quite ready to make a foolish match. Anybody between fifteen and thirty may have me for asking. A little beauty and a few smiles and a few compliments to the navy, and I am a lost man. Should not this be enough for a sailor who has had no society among women to make him nice? He said it, she knew, to be contradicted. (laughs) His bright, proud eye spoke the conviction that he was nice, which means choosy in this context. And Anne Elliot was not out of his thoughts when he more seriously described the woman he should wish to meet with. A strong mind with sweetness of manner made the first and the last of his description. That is the woman I want, said he. Something a little inferior I shall, of course, put up with, but it must not be by much. (laughs) If I am a fool, I shall be a fool indeed, for I have thought on the subject more than most men. That kind of amazing <laughs> confidence yes. with which he um, ends. So that's the end of the chapter, actually. Yes, but yeah, but even that. I mean, you can, you as you know, you can spend a lot of time because they're so rich and subtle. These passages of Jane Austen, you spend easily an hour on just that passage, which we mustn't do. But you know, when he says, "I've thought of, of I've thought on this more than most men." As you as you rightly say, that's you know it, it sounds very confident, but absolutely there's a subtext to that, which is when Anne turned him away, having first accepted him, you know he brooded on that. That's what he's been doing. I mean, he's been off at sea killing Frenchmen um, and making a great name for himself as a man of action, but he's been brooding on this. Um, and when he says, "I've thought on about it more than I've thought on this more than most men," he's referring to the fact that you know, after this terrible disappointment in love, he's been dwelling on it. He's a man of feeling as well as a man of confidence. Mm. 
Yeah, I think just to avoid um, confusion um, for if anybody is listening who's not so familiar with Jane Austen, um, I mean a lot of writers, of course, describe the relate the thoughts and feelings of characters or describe characters um, and describe what is going on within their minds. But what Austen does is is very often something slightly different, which is she relates the story through their minds. So the story itself is the account that we get is already inflected by their thoughts, feelings, biases, and as you say, by their errors. I think especially in, in, uh, perhaps especially in Emma. Yes. But I even notice it in that very famous sentence at the beginning of Pride Pride and Prejudice. Um, It is a truth universally acknowledged that that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. <laughs> I, I mean, who is saying that? Yes. Um, it's obviously kind of all of Meryton. Yes. It's people like Mrs. Bennet, you know, one of the most sort of contemptible characters um, in Austen. And um, there's nothing, it, it's pronounced with this kind of air of authorial um, authorial authority, yeah. <laughs> that's a yes. um, pleonasm, but it's pronounced with this this air of kind of omniscient authority, but it's not the author speaking at all. No, no, um, that's right. And, and actually one of the, um, one of the little things you get in, in, in most Austin novels, you get it a lot in Pride and Prejudice, even more in Emma, um, both of which are sort of based in, villages which are actually sort of more like small towns is that you get these statements which are often either in impersonal or in there in the passive voice um it was soon widely agreed that <laughs> dot, dot 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 and this happens a lot in emma because there's a world of sort of gossip and speculation and um uh and these statements are 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 always um, they're sort of ironical, I suppose. People always say they're ironical, but they're ironical not so much because it's Jane Austen saying them in a very arch way, although we can imagine that if we like, but more because they represent, as in that opening sentence in Pride and Prejudice, and as always in Emma, the sort of consensus, the asinine consensus of a kind of community of people who as individuals we don't know, but who all agree this, that or the other. And the things they agree are usually either questionable or simply downright wrong. You know, everyone in, it was soon (laughs) agreed that, I I can't remember the exact sentence, but one of the um, one of the chapters in Emma opens with some statements like it was soon agreed that Mrs. Elton was a fine young woman. And Mrs. Elton is a monster, a monster <laughs> of vulgarity and vanity. Um, and, but, but of course, most of the people of, um, you know, most of the, the people in Emma, um, uh, most of the people of Highbury, the, which is the town stroke village in Emma, they just see her at church and see that she's wearing expensive clothes. Um, uh, and that's it. That's good enough for them. You know, <laughs> that's good enough for them to sort of say <laughs> apparently nice things about, about her. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's one of Austin's tricks is this sort of, um, 
this voice which has produced, ironically, the, probably the most famous quote in, uh, in all Austen. And even then, you, you see, I mean, a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Um, even there, it contains its own little detonation because uh, these novels are all, they're all centered on women, but they're all about men who want wives, aren't they? And, mm. and often they do what Captain Wentworth says he will do, but we know he won't, which is they marry foolish wives because they fancy them, probably, usually. And Mr. Bennett, who's one of the cleverest, subtlest men in all Austin, marries a fool. And Mr. Palmer, who, in Sense and Sensibility, who's bad-tempered but intelligent, marries the very foolish Charlotte Palmer, a woman who can't stop laughing at absolutely everything, including the fact that her husband's constantly rude to her. Um, and, you know, that's what some men do because men want wives. And unless they're rakes like Willoughby in Sense and Sensibility or Wickham in Pride and Prejudice, to, you know, to put it very um, bluntly, if they want to sort of have a sex life, they've got to get married and they've got to find somebody, preferably somebody attractive also somebody with money, but somebody attractive who um, is willing to marry them. And there's a great sentence in, in Emma about the odious, smooth-tongued vicar, Mr. Elton, whom the reader immediately see, sees is odious, but Emma doesn't at first, doesn't for quite a long time. And it says, Mr. Elton, living alone and not much liking it. <laughs> I just think what a world of meaning there is in that. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, be, these men aren't just in want of a wife, in your opinion or my opinion. Quite a lot of them really are in want of a wife. Yeah. I, you talk about, I mean, a, a remark that you made when I was an undergrad, which has oh, no. stayed with me oh, all no. my life. Oh, no, 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> about, no, but you, you actually repeat it in the Jane Austen ah, book okay. um, decades later. Gosh, <laughs> um, I'm on the loop tape. Which is that, <laughs> um, so people underestimate the importance of, uh, sex, sexual motivations for men in Austen's novels. And, um, you talk, you, uh, were talking about Charlotte Lucas's, um, marriage to Mr. Collins, yes. um, who is this kind of, um, pedantic, self-important, bumbling idiot. Yes. Um, although he's actually quite a young man. He's 25 in the novel, as you point out, whereas uh, usually in TV and films uh, adaptations, he's played by somebody who's at least middle-aged. Yes. Yes. He's, a, he's a young fogey. Yes, he is. I don't know if people still use that <laughs> term, term, but, you know, he's kind of old before his time. And um, she decides to marry him um, because uh, she's getting older uh, herself by by Austin standards, 
uh, by the standards of Austin society for marriageable young women. And she also has very little money coming to her. So she needs to secure her future. Yes. And she marries Mr. Collins and um, she has um, the novel kind of glosses over it and she she tells her friend Elizabeth that she's actually quite happy with Mr. Collins because um she managed she has managed things such that they avoid each other all day. Um that she sits indoors while he's in the garden. When he comes indoors she goes outside. Um that they never actually intersect in any one space. Yes. And then you said to us but have you noticed that she is pregnant by the end of the novel? Oh, did I? <laughs> yes. Well, I bet you hadn't. I bet you hadn't. I hadn't, no. no. And the horror with which that idea <laughs> seized my mind oh. has never left and me. And the other students too, I'm sure. Yes, I'm certain. Yes. One of the more traumatic yes. moments. <laughs> That's because we, you find out via a weird... Um, euphemism, which was not so unknown in the period, in one of Mr. Collins's letters, where he says, "You know, we're getting a new branch of the laurel crown, or something like that." You know, which is <laughs> which is his way of saying that his wife is pregnant. It makes it even worse. It it's does. kind of wink, wink, yes. nudge, nudge. Yes. You know, and he's so <laughs> pleased with himself about it. Of course he is. You know, <laughs> yes. Um, and we 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 might think that first time fathers to be are allowed to be a little pleased with themselves when their partners are pregnant, but we still are so ungenerous that we're not prepared to allow Mister Collins to feel it, are we? <laughs> no. Well, because he. Is such a pillar. Yes, he is. He is awful. <laughs> but, you know, um, actually, the funny thing is, when uh, I was thinking about this, when we were talking about free and direct style and and that wonderful bit of chapter seven, I think it is of persuasion that you read out, um, which is another must, which is when Charlotte Lucas has had this proposal from Mister Collins. And again, I can't imagine really there is anybody out there listening who's not read Pride and Prejudice. But just in case, um, <laughs> Mr. Collins, it's again, it's carefully plotted and, and comically plotted. Mr. Collins turns up at the Bennett's house, Longbourn, because he is a distant relative of Mr. Bennett. And Mr. Bennett has had five daughters and he has inherited the estate himself on condition that it then it's entailed. That means he can't leave it to who he wants. Um, by law, it goes to his closest male relative. So he's had five daughters, so none of them are going to get it. And Mr. Collins is his closest male relative. And Mr. Collins is going to inherit everything. And he writes this fantastically absurd letter. I do recommend it to everybody. Um, saying that he's coming to visit. And he's sort of casing the joint, really. He's come to see um, what he's going to get, but also becomes clear um, he's come to get, he wants a wife. He's in want of a wife, um, mainly because his monstrous patron, Lady Catherine de Bourgh, um, who is even funnier than Judy Dench's enactment of her, I can promise you, um, has told him, you know, you must get a wife. So he's come to get a wife. And he, but the point of all this is that 
it's carefully plotted because he's announced in advance how long he's going to stay. And basically, he's there 10 days. So he's got 10 days to court and propose to and get an acceptance from one of the daughters. And Mrs. Mm -hmm. Bennett makes it clear very rapidly that the oldest one, Jane, um, who's mild and pretty and would be a good a good prospect, um, and she's 22 years old, that's fine, um, that she's already taken because Mrs. Bennett has high hopes that Jane will get a proposal from the very rich uh, young Mr. Bingley. So uh, Mr. Collins changes his target um, to the next daughter down, who's Elizabeth. And there's a wonderful sentence, which I'll get slightly wrong, but, but uh, about him changing his mind after Mrs. Bennett in the drawing room tells him. And, it's, and he changes his mind and it says something like, it did not take him long, no longer than it took Mrs. Bennett to turn a log on the fire. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> if, if that was sort of, I don't know, Samuel Beckett or Kafka, people would just, you know, thrill with delight at the deadliness of it, wouldn't they? But it's hardly, no, you hardly notice it in Jane Austen, but it's nonetheless deadly. Um, so then he goes for Elizabeth. And anyway, to cut the long story short, he wastes eight days courting her. And then, of course, she famously turns him down. And so now blinking, heck, he's only got two days left. You know, and it's a real race against time. And there's a big dinner party on, um, you know, day eight. And Elizabeth's very relieved to see that her great friend Charlotte Lucas, who's like Anne Elliot, reached the hugely advanced age of 27, um, has taken Mr. Collins on and that she doesn't have to talk to him. But of course, Charlotte Lucas has an ulterior motive, which is now that. Um, has everybody's found out because Lydia has gone and told everybody that Elizabeth turned him down, and Charlotte Lucas sets about uh, being pleasing to him, and uh, it's one of the shortest courtships in world fiction. It lasts the course of a sort of dinner with the Lucases and the Bennets, which may be maximum five hours. That's it. That's their courtship. And, uh, um, and of course, if this was a French novel and it was a coup de fouge and it was an affair of passion, you would think, yeah, great, five hours. Of course, you know your partner for life. Of course you do. Um, but, this, <laughs> but Charlotte Lucas is being entirely prudential. And next day, Mr. Collins sets off to Lucas Lodge, where Charlotte Lee lives, and she's looking out of an upstairs window and spots him, and and it says something like, and she goes down, so she is able to meet him accidentally in the lane, <laughs> and then he proposes <laughs> to her, and she accepts, and it's a done deal. And at the end of this, I have actually um, uh, looked this up, so I, I would be impressive if I knew it off by heart, but I'm. I'm I've found it in the novel. And Mr. Collins goes off really, really happily. And she's accepted the proposal of marriage. And it says, her reflections were in general satisfactory. Mr. Collins, to be sure, 
was neither sensible nor agreeable. His society, <laughs> his society was irksome, and his attachment to her must be imaginary. But still, <laughs> he would be her husband. Um, you know, and it's good to see how funny it is, isn't it? Because people write such po-faced stuff about, um, in student essays, I'm afraid, as well as academic <laughs> articles about, this shows the terrible price women paid in the early 19th century for marriages of mere convenience. And of course, it's not completely wrong, but it's, it's comic. It's absurd. And one of the reasons it's so absurd and so funny, I think, is because she does, Austin is doing that free and direct style thing again isn't it it's these um think about the brilliance of this utterly unnecessary phrase to be sure her reflections were in general satisfactory mr collins <laughs> to be sure was neither sensible nor agreeable now if it just said mr collins was neither sensible nor agreeable we might think jane austen was telling us something might but mr collins to be sure and and that is what lets us into the drama of her thought. So she's thinking this, Mr. Collins. Yeah, it's true. He uh, he's not sensible <laughs> and he's not agreeable. And then that killer word must again. His society was irksome. She's <laughs> just agreed to spend the rest of her life with him. His society was irksome, and his attachment to her must be imaginary. Oh, it's just a brilliant use of the word must, isn't it? If it said again, his attachment to her was imaginary, that's mm. like information that the, that the the narrator's giving you. But in fact, it's not information. It's the internal drama, the weather of, you know, the sort of, yeah, the weather, W-E-A-T-H-E-R, of Charlotte Lucas's thoughts. And it's as if she's thinking to herself, he seems to be very attached to him. Oh, that just must be imaginary. That must be. Yes. What am I? Of course it is. <laughs> His attachment to her must be imaginary. So Charlotte Lucas, and it's all in character, so brilliantly in character. Charlotte Lucas is such a practical person. Um, she says earlier on to Elizabeth, I am not romantic, you know, meaning not just I'm not into lovey-dovey stuff, but I don't let my imagine, imagination ever run away with me. Um, I don't succumb to wishfulness. That's what romantic mm. meant at yes. that time. So, so even at this moment, she is too, too much herself to allow herself to believe even for a second that his professions of affection for her have any basis in reality whatsoever. It's fantastic. Um, and of course, also very skillfully, all this is done in one of these moments in Pride and Prejudice. Austin does this differently in different novels where you go away from the heroine and you're not with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth doesn't know anything about this. And this will enable Austin to stage very soon afterwards one of these great little scenes where Charlotte Lucas has to tell her friend, you know, and it's, it says, you know, one of the worst things about, about accepting the proposal of marriage from Mr. Collins is that you have to then go and tell Elizabeth Bennett about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and, and Elizabeth, you know, 
Do you remember what she says, Iona, when at Charlotte Luke? No. I think I do remember. I haven't got it in front of me, but I think I do. She says, I think she says, Mr. Collins, impossible, exclamation mark. You know? Oh, yes. I think she said Um, that. And, and, and. You know what? And then she, and then she realizes what she says and backs off and backs off and backs off. You know, because Charlotte Lucas says, "You know, can you? Are, are you saying that because Mr. Collins was not so happy to win your affections that he couldn't win anybody else's?" You know, and um, and Elizabeth is 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 um, embarrassed and guilty at her her outburst. Um, because, but her outburst is prompted by her realization, of course, of just how irksome Mr. Collins's company indeed is. You know. Oh yes, I found it. Um, the possibility of Mr. Collins's fancying himself in love with her friend had once occurred to Elizabeth within the last day or two, but that Charlotte could encourage him seemed almost as far from possibility as she could encourage him herself. And her astonishment was consequently so great as to overcome at first the bounds of decorum. And she could not help crying out, engaged Mr. Collins, my dear Charlotte, impossible. Impossible, yes. (laughs) 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 I think that's what she says to Mr. Collins himself also when he proposes to her. I think she says... um, I'm just I'm just uh, searching for the word here. <laughs> oh yeah, um um I thank you again and again for the honor you have done me in your proposals. This is Elizabeth to Mr. Collins. Right. But to accept them is absolutely Impossible. impossible. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My feelings in every respect forbid it. Yes. And that's when he says you are uniformly charming. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, because, he thinks she's just being coy. Yes. You know, flirting, um, flirting with him. Yes, yes. And Teasing. It, it, yes, because, and, you know, it's a, it's a, a sort of, it's a, dare I say, it's a sort of comic version of that Me Too thing of yes, men thinking, thinking that. that when women say no, they don't really mean no. But, I mean, it's in a comic situation because Mr. Collins, you know, the great thing is, because Elizabeth Bennet is Elizabeth Bennet, Mr. Collins is no kind of threat at all to her. No threat whatsoever. She knows what she thinks. And <clears throat> she's absolutely not going to say yes to somebody like him. Um, and, indeed, you know, we... we uh, rapidly find out that her father very much um um agrees with her so <laughs> so it's 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 an entirely comic thing but you know it is but mr collins has has apparently been taught or has read in books but when you propose to a young woman she she doesn't go oh yes please she goes oh well i'm not really very i don't know you know i'm not very willing um and that that's absolutely standard and it all uh it all means yes (laughs) i was thinking as as we as we were talking um about the fact that uh for for the men in uh, in Austen's novels and in, in Austen's age, your your options were uh, being a rake or being celibate. Yes. Um, and in, in just in that passage that I read from Persuasion, where um, Frederick Wentworth says that his years, his eight years at sea as a sailor, have made him less nice, less choosy. Yes. 
um, that now he just needs a woman. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, I'm sure social historians would tell you um, that, you know, in real life, IRL, <laughs> um, mm. you know, Mr. Knightley, however good a chap in Emma, would have been unlikely to reach the age of 37 without having had any kinds of sexual relations and that mm. perfectly respectable men had such relationships, if not with prostitutes, then with their servants, most often, probably. Right, um, right. And there's plenty of, you know, and um, uh, and that sailors and soldiers, um, you know, in Austin's age, as in other ages, um, uh, would find and probably pay for sex in the places that they went to on service, and um, and that that in their eyes that would not in any way sort of um, uh, you know uh, spoil them for the prospects of a kind of um, conventional and perhaps indeed faithful marriage afterwards, um, mm, mm. and that you know as Austin herself reflects at the end of Mansfield Park attitudes of the time were much more tolerant towards men than women when it came to to to, to sex before marriage particularly i think sex outside yes. marriage is a slightly different thing so you know so perhaps in reality it is unlikely that somebody like mr knightley or captain wentworth who's 31 i think by the time the novel, in the main action of the novel, would have reached those ages without any sexual experience. But that's not a fact. I mean, that's excluded from the novel. That's just not a fact yes. in the novel. And, yes. and, and uh, we just have to accept that, I think, as just like we have to accept the fact that, um, you know, that when they find the right woman, they're amorous propensities as dr johnson called it um, <laughs> were awakened i mean it was so it's so you know every time you look at austin you see something new it was you you've alerted me now to that word impossible i'd forgotten that it was the word that as you rightly say elizabeth bennett uses herself to mr collins because it reminds me of a uh, a wonderful passage in emma where emma um, who is 20 years old and, as it were, the queen of the village and the most eligible, because she's rich, handsome, clever and rich. She is eligibility itself. And at a certain key stage later in the novel, and I'm afraid, spoiler alert again, she realises that she loves Mr Knightley, who is a sort of family friend who's 16 or 17 years older than her, who um, is the only person who ever contradicts her, the only person really whose opinion she ever cares about. And she realises that, again, another wonderful must, Mr Knightley must marry no one but herself. <laughs> but she realises this at the moment when she's become convinced, for reasons I won't go into, that this brainless young woman called Harriet Smith, who's 17 years old and whom Emma has cultivated, made her protege because she's a she's a sort of child of she's a she's at the local boarding school where she's been put by her father because she's a 
she's an illegitimate child. She doesn't even know who her father is, um, except that he's re- decent enough to pay for her education. And so she's an absolute nobody. And Emma has cultivated her like sort of, you know, Frankenstein and his monster, actually, it becomes, because although Harriet is a dimwit, she's sweet-natured and she's pretty, maybe even sexy. Um, Mm. And Harriet comes to see her to say that she's interested in Mr. Knightley. This is after Emma's tried to marry off to other people. And Emma says to her, have you any idea that Mr. Knightley might return your affection? Um, And uh, Harriet says something like, "Um, yes, I rather think I do. And Harriet is too stupid to lie. She always tells the truth. And Emma suddenly realises with horror that at that moment that she loves Mr. Knightley. But maybe Mr. Knightley is going to end up with Harriet Smith. And there's this great bit of sort of, sort of dramatic monologue in, in Emma's head with lots of exclamation marks. Mr. Knightley and Harriet Smith. And there's this bit where it says something like, um, she's, it, it is her thought, she's thinking this. Could it be? And then she, it goes, no, it was impossible, full stop. Okay, and then it says, and yet it was far, very far from impossible. Um, and it's like, a, it's like a Shakespeare soliloquy, you know, where a character says something that they're thinking and then immediately contradicts it. No, it was impossible. And yet it was far, far from impossible because she's thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, men do marry sexy young women. That's what they do. And so maybe this is going to happen. And maybe, so she has, she's been the very one to bring up this young woman, to give her ideas above her station, to encourage her to think well of herself. And in doing so, Emma has, she thinks at this awful moment, destroyed her own happiness. Um, Mm you know, mm-hmm. and Mr. Knightley can afford to marry, you know, he's com- he's very comfortably off. He can afford to marry whoever he wants. So yes. maybe he's going to marry the sexy fool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Impossible. So there's a whole, there's obviously a whole article to be written, Iona, isn't there, about impossible. Yes. Um, I think also a little bit in defense of the kind of, the idea of marrying for sex in Austin. Yes. Um, despite the fact that you could have affairs with servants and uh, prostitutes and things if you were a um uh, if you were a man, a single man. Um I think even today most sex is within relationships. Um I, people who are single might have more a um, greater variety of partners. Um but statistically I think um people who are in married or in relationships have a lot more sex. <laughs> do they? Um, <laughs> they do, yes. I think that, to, that survey has been done research, according, according, to, according to research. According to yes. people doing much more interesting PhDs than the one I did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Of course, um, you know, no one has really proven yes, this. Yes, I, um, I did see, I remember seeing a wonderful survey in 
in, in which perhaps Jane Austen would have been amused by in in uh, a woman's magazine many years ago, which asked men and women separately, married men and married women separately, <laughs> what was best and worst about marriage, and uh, the the women who were asked what was best about marriage said um, companionship, and the men said regular sex. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know there you go i don't know i don't know if uh if um that was the kind of survey which produced its own answers as it were but but i mean of course for, you know crucially though before we do get into cosmopolitan land um the di- you know one big thing in jane austen which is a convention of her novels but also a fact of life in the 19th century um is and which completely shapes the drama of her fiction is that once you marry somebody that's it you know um there is of course a divorce in jane austen in mansfield park mr rushworth divorces his wife maria formerly maria bertram because she's been conducting uh an affair with um henry crawford so she, he divorces her for adultery and he does it. He can do that because he's rich. You have to do it, bring a, a private bill before the House of Lords and you have to be very rich to do it, but also it gets in all the newspapers. And indeed, Fanny, the heroine, is staying uh, with her, her family in their very cramped abode in Portsmouth. And her father, who's a former Marine on half pay um, and who sort of smells of gin all the time, um, he reads aloud about it from the newspaper. So it's the entertainment of any boozer in Britain is, is this absolutely scandalous divorce. So it did occasionally happen, but only in that particular way. And it was nearly impossible for a woman to divorce a man, nearly because she had to prove not only uh, adultery, but also physical cruelty. And that was often Mm. very difficult to prove. But anyway, there weren't many, very few divorce cases. Those were almost entirely amongst very wealthy people. Um, So it's all or nothing, you know. And those short courtships, I mean, in, in, in Emma, Mr. Elton proposes to Emma um, in a wonderful, hilarious uh, scene in the back of a carriage on Christmas Eve, uh, with all the confidence that he's going to be accepted, just like Mr. Collins's confidence that he was going to be accepted, or Mr. Darcy's even greater confidence in his first proposal to Elizabeth that he's going to be accepted. And you know, don't you, Iona, that the rule of proposals in Jane Austen, yes. don't you? Yeah, but if a man... if you if you think you're if you're certain you're going to be accepted, you're not going to be yes. accepted. If a man proposes as if he cannot imagine the answer will be no, then the answer will be no. Um, and those proposals that we do see in Austen's novels, um, and that there are a couple we don't ever see, we don't ever actually hear what's said, but but the. The proposals that do occur, Mr. Darcy's second proposal, Mr. Knightley's proposal to Emma, um, they all are hesitant, reticent, you know. And and none of them say, will you marry me? I think Mr. Knightley says, you know, have I any reason to hope? Mm. (laughs) That's, you know, so 
so anyway, yes, um, that that's how you, yeah, that's how you have to propose. So um, oh, I've lost my track now. Mr. Elton proposing to Emma in the in the uh, in the back of the carriage. Why was I talking about that? What were we on? Uh, oh, we're on. Yes, people, people's um, marriages being sort of indissoluble. So after Mr. Elton's rejected, he's very grumpy. And he says, sort of basically, right, I'm going to get to get, get a wife who's not you. And he goes to Bath, which is a good place to find a wife. And he re- four weeks later, he writes a letter uh, to um, Mr. Cole, who's a sort of acquaintance in the village, announcing the fact that he's engaged. Four weeks it's taken to go mm-hmm. from not knowing somebody to them agreeing to be with him forever. Um, and so it is forever. So it's, you know, it's a massive decision. And, um, that somebody once said to me, <laughs> you quote things I said to you when I was teaching you. I think somebody once said to me when they were teaching me, um, not particularly about Jane Austen, but about the whole of 18th and 19th century fiction. Um, liberal divorce laws may have been a good thing for a, for a society, but they were very, very bad for the English novel. Um, because as soon as you can say, actually, you know, uh, this isn't working out. Should we scrub it? And we both try again with somebody else. Uh, as soon as you can do that, it does rather take the electricity out of the decision. Right. It means you, you have to come up with a different, uh, plot structure Yes, because, you know, tradition, com- uh, tragedies end with deaths and comedies end with marriages. So. And both of those were almost equally uh permanent endings but also also it should be said um and i think that you can see the shadows the intimations of this in austin in the 19th century some of the greatest european not just english novelists discover ways of writing novels about marriage and sometimes as in madame bovary or anna karenina that means writing novels about adultery but not always you know, Middlemarch is amongst many other things, in a way, a novel about two unhappy marriages, um, mm, yes. uh, both of which are resolved when the husband dies, setting the woman free. <laughs> um, because Mr. Casorban's death sets Dorothea free from a marriage she is foolishly entered into, but also Lydgate's death, much later in the novel, sets Rosamond free. Uh, from a marriage which she and Lydgate entered into with a good degree of passion, actually. But anyway, mm. <clears throat> novelists find ways of writing novels that inhabit marriages, as Austen doesn't, um, but uh, necessarily unhappy marriages and necessarily marriages that have no prospect of divorce. You know, Dorothea and Mr. Casorban. Um, Emma Bovary and Charles Bovary, they're not going to get, they can't get divorced, you know. Mm. Um, so how, how is this going to end? Well, you know, in, in, in a terrible death in the case of, of, of Madame Bovary, but, but, you know, in more ordinary ways in, in English novels. So the novel of the unhappy marriage, again, relies on the difficulty perhaps even impossibility of divorce you know you get that in dickens too um 
And Dickens indeed was a campaigner for more liberal divorce laws, not least because of the, his own growing unhappiness about his, his marriage. And we all know about his terrible behavior over it. But anyway, another story. So, yeah, so I think it's, yeah, with Austin, there's a traditional comedy, they end in marriage. But you can see in the marriages that are there in the book, talked a bit about Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, Mr. and Mrs. Palmer, um, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Elton. There are lots of married couples, and uh, people often say that only Admiral and Mrs. Croft in um, Persuasion, who have a childless marriage, and it's quite important that they have no children, so Mrs. Croft can always go off on ship with him, um, they seem the only sort of compatibly married people in the whole of Jane Austen. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are sort of there are some poisonously compatible people. Mr. and Mrs. Elton are sort of compatible, but how horrible they're like, like two vipers. Um, uh, Mr. and Mrs. John Dashwood in Sense and Sensibility. John Dashwood, yes. the half brother of the Dashwood sisters, and he's got this absolutely poisonous wife, mm. Fanny. Um, uh, and she just manipulates him to do whatever she wants. Um, so they're not exactly unhappy together, but they're hardly a model of um, sort of marital um, contentment for, for other people to chase. So I just, uh, I actually, in, in the last 10 minutes, I'd like to talk maybe a little bit about idiolects. Because I think this is one of the most fun aspects of Austin, um, the way in which he is able, sometimes with only single utterances or only a few sentences, to um, show you a great deal about a person's character from their way of speaking. Yeah. And um, perhaps you could talk about the... Um, so I don't even know if it's still on there. Um, but the quote, the Austin quotation that was on the £10 note, <laughs> I think it was. And that, that's a quotation from uh, Caroline. It's Caroline Bingley, I think. Yes, yes. Um, there is no, I I do declare there is no pleasure like reading. I can't remember. No, I do declare. Quotation. I declare. And it's enjoyment, not pleasure. But anyway, oh. we're almost there, Iona. Almost. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so there's. Yeah. So th I guess that's the the Jane Austen quote, which, well, until the pandemic stopped any of us using cash, um, it was the Jane Austen quote that was more frequently reproduced than any other. And you know, listeners might remember um, that there was a bigger argument, and indeed a big sort of PR campaign really about Jane Austen being put on the £10 note and when she was put on the £10 note um, it was a sort of it was one of the first things that Mark Carney did when he became governor of the Bank of England and it seemed like a sign of his sort of modernizing tendency and and it was one of those rare things that everybody was happy about it <clears throat> that you know feminists were happy about it uh but traditionalists were happy about it, and The Guardian was happy about it, but The Daily Mail was happy about it. So it was all win-win. And they'd already done Churchill on the £5 note and established a pattern where you had a picture of the person and then a quote underneath it. And the Churchill quote was, I might get these nouns in the wrong order, but it's something like, 
I can promise you only blood, sweat, toil, and tears. Um, and they needed a Jane Austen quote. And in a way, because of exactly because of what we've been spending quite a long time talking about, the, the way that so much of the novels is filtered through the characters and is not Jane Austen speaking at all, it's actually really hard to find a Jane Austen quote. Um, <clears throat> it would be easy to find a Dickens quote or very easy to find a George Eliot quote because she's always speaking to you in the novels. But Jane Austen is really hard. So they came up with this quote, which was duly stuck on the £10 note and, it, and is there millions and millions times over. And the quote is, I declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. And yes. That's it. And, you know, lots of Jane Heights, so, as they're so called, um, were up in arms about this because <laughs> <laughs> it's Caroline Bingley. And it's a bit like having a, a, a picture of Shakespeare and then a quote from Lady Macbeth underneath it. <laughs> Caroline Bingley is a self-serving, um, vindictive, scheming, um, dishonest person. Um, who doesn't doesn't like reading at all, and indeed, in context, it's even worse because she says this when Mister Darcy is trying to read, and she plonked herself on the <laughs> sofa know. next to him and takes up volume two of the book he's reading, volume one of, and starts appearing to read it. But of course, she doesn't read it because she's going chatter, chatter, chatter. Because all she's interested in is acquiring Mister Darcy's her husband, and. After she's gone on and on for a bit, <coughs> she she did, she says, "I declare, after all, there's no enjoyment like reading," and <coughs> it's completely disingenuous. And uh, but but you can hear it's such a Charlotte, uh, sorry, it's such a Caroline Bingley thing to say because I mean, why does somebody say, "I declare, I declare"? Um, you know, it, it's it's as if you know that what comes after that must be untrue if somebody's found it necessary to say, I declare, I declare, after all. And why does she say after all? It's as if she's been spending the last hour reading, but she hasn't. She hasn't been reading at all. After all. <laughs> um, oh, God, that was wonderful. Um, but she hasn't been reading. She's been chattering. I declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. Um, and in fact, um, she uh, uh, soon after that um, is um, having a go at Elizabeth Bennet for reading because they play cards. This is at Netherfield while Jane Bennet is ill upstairs and Elizabeth is visiting and they play cards. They play a game called Lou and they play for money, and Elizabeth decides she won't join in because she can't afford to lose the money, and so she picks up a book, and Caroline Bingley says lots of, sort of sneery... I mean, Mr. Hurst says the only sentence... <laughs> <laughs> the only sentence he says in the whole of the novel, or rather, the only sentence that's... He's often talking, but what he says is so inconsequential that um, it's never reported, and this is the one time that his words are given and he says the immortal sentence do you prefer reading to cards that is rather singular that's it 
That's his contribution <laughs> to world discourse, and that's him forever. You know, that sent those two sentences. They're just rather singular. Sum him up. And, yeah, and Caroline Bingley uh, has a go. You know, she says, oh, something about uh, Miss Elizabeth Bennet. She, you know, she prefers reading to absolutely everything. Um, and um, as if, you know, she's a sort of, uh, socially awkward, intellectually superior blue stocking or something. Um, so <laughs> that's another great thing in Austin's novels is about the way people speak <laughs> is she captures this extraordinary sense of not just what's distinctive about how they speak, but how they contradict each other themselves, not each other, themselves. So from one moment to the next... So Isabella Thorpe in Northanger Abbey um, uh, says, and who's a calculating minx, um, says to her supposed friend, oh, we're such friends, I love you so much. She says to her supposed friend Catherine, the naive Catherine, I hate money. <laughs> it's the most absurd thing. It's the most thing. absurd thing to say, you know, and you know, <laughs> I hate money, bracket, <laughs> equals I love money. <laughs> you know, only somebody who loves money would say I hate money. But anyway, she says, I hate money. But two chapters later, she says, there's no doing without money, you know. You know, as in life, I own it. You know, characters blithely contra- contradict themselves, um, including... The heroines, um, um, I, at the end of one of the early chapters of Pride and Prejudice, after um, uh, the assembly ball in Meryton, uh, Mrs. Bennet is slagging off Mr. Darcy and says, and she's, and she's chuntering on and she says to Elizabeth, um, uh, don't you ever dance with Mr. Darcy. And Elizabeth says, Mom, I think she says, I can promise you, I will never dance with Mr. Darcy. Oh, yeah? <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> What's the most famous sort of thing that every dramatization of Pride and Prejudice spends all its time and money on? Elizabeth dancing mm. with Mr. Darcy? Of course. Um, you know, well, we're all fools. We all say things which we contradict the next minute. But but anyway, slightly slipping away from idiolect, but it, it's. It's to give you the sense that um, not only does Jane Austen produce these distinctive patterns of speech, um, which are distinctive of a character, but also everything they say is part of a sort of drama of how they're behaving and how they're contradicting themselves and what they're doing. So, and I think, you know, that's often very difficult to put your finger on, but it says, it's, it's, I think she's second to none. You say um, in, the, in, in your book, you talk about the kind of pleasure of being made to feel as intelligent and wise as Austen <laughs> while, while one is reading the Austen novels. And I think that a large part of that comes from this, uh, the fact that you always have to read between the lines. Yes. Um, so you're very rarely just told something straight. Um, you you quickly realize that you always have to interpret who's saying this, what's their point of view, how likely is it to be true, etc. And that gives you this sense of putting together the puzzle yourself in your own mind as you're reading, rather than having it handed to you. And that's very pleasurable. Yeah, it makes your sort of faculties tingle. And I think 
she's rather she's matchless in that um in that in that capacity in that <clears throat> other writers who might do the same thing do it in involve it involves them in much more complicated maneuvers and often much wordier prose if you see what i mean mm. so you know there's no doubt that a novelist like henry james um on the one hand or george eliot on the other offers just as much psychological complexity as jane austen does or or tolstoy for that matter um but what what she is unrivaled at is the mixture of of managing to do that complexity, um, those demands you, you're speaking about on the reader, with such simple means and often with such simple sentences, actually. Um, uh, so that I remember um, it must have been one of those sort of 200th anniversary radio programs about... Uh, I think it was probably on the 200th anniversary of the publication of Pride and Prejudice. So this was sort of nine years ago, 2013. And there were all sorts of discussions. And I was in some discussion program on the radio. And the person chairing it asked, luckily, <laughs> not me, but one of the other panel members, you know, what? so what's it all about? Why is everybody still on about Jane Austen? You know, that sort of <laughs> mugs question, as it were. <laughs> and uh, this person who was a sort of grand dame of, of whom there are several, grand dame of Jane Austen studies and retired academic, but definitely somebody who knows, knows their stuff very much with Jane Austen. And she said really accurately, and I, I, and, you know, I wish I'd boiled it down so effectively myself before this moment. She said, well, the thing is, it's really, really simple. And it's really, really complicated. And then she went on to say, so, you know, a, a bookish 13-year-old girl, probably, it has to be said. But anyway, a bookish 13-year-old can read Pride and Prejudice and can completely get it and really enjoy it. Um, but then you read it for the sixth time, I don't know, in your 50s. And you see all these things you've never noticed before, all these complexities you hadn't properly registered. And, and, you know, when you read Henry James or George Eliot or Shakespeare or Milton, you know it's complicated and difficult. It's difficult. But Prime Precious isn't difficult. It's easy. You know, it's GCSE. You can do it for GCSE. And yet the technical and therefore psychological complexities are as great as in the work of any of those other authors I've mentioned. And that's that's the really singular thing I think about her. Yeah, absolutely. That might be a good place to end on, um, unless there's something you're dying to say that you haven't had a chance to say. Well, no, the only thing I'm dying to say is I'm now going to pursue <laughs> the word impossible. <laughs> through the through the the speech of various of her characters, because it's clearly a word that some of her heroines like to use. Impossible, mm. and they always <laughs> seem to use it of things which are not impossible at all. <laughs> so, um, so that's given me um, something to while away the rest of the afternoon with. Thank you. And I, I read the, I first read Jane Austen's novels when I was 12. Right. 
and I'm now about to reread them at the age of 53. Okay. And uh, I think I will definitely find new things in them. You definitely, so. definitely will. You're going to reread all of them? I think so, okay. yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, well, one interesting thing. I mean, it may sound a little pedantic, but it might you might find it interesting, is if you're going to actually reread all of them, is to reread them in chronological order of their publication. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. that sort of... Because one thing I think about Jane Austen, one of my one of the axes I would like to grind academically, is that when she started off, when she was writing Sense and Sensibility, and to a lesser extent, a bit with Pride and Prejudice, she was actually quite influenced by other novels of her time and the novels that had gone before her, even if she was sort of, as it were, writing against them. And then by the time she got beyond Pride and Prejudice, the only person she was influenced by was herself, really, because uh, she was so sort of out on her own, actually. And I, I sort of think she was conscious of that. I think she was, I don't think she probably didn't think, she probably wasn't so vain and foolish as to think, I am the best novelist ever. But I'm sure that she soon began to realise once she was once she got Pride and Prejudice under her belt, I think she began to realise that she wasn't going to learn anything from reading novels by her contemporaries. Not really. I mean, she still read them, but only to have a laugh. Yeah, I'm just looking to see when Elective Affinities was published. Because... Oh, yeah, that's that's before Austen, I think. I think. Yes, that's 1809, and yeah. Mansfield Park was in 1814. I mean, I don't know if she read no, that novel well, I, I have in done, translation. I did once try and trace that, track that down, and it seems almost certain that she did not read it. Mm, yeah. Because there are a lot of there are a lot of thematic um, and plot similarities there, yeah. although they're very different treatments. But it. It, it's also, I find it kind of more fruitful to think of Mansfield Park and Emma as a pair of novels that are, uh, where she explores two com- contrasting approaches, um, characterizations, heroines, yes. uh, etc. Um, yeah, indeed, indeed. And I mean, I think Mansfield Park, one way, one very simple way of seeing it as a riposte to people who I think foolishly say, oh, Fanny Price, oh, she's such a, she's so dull and boring. Um, I don't like her. She's such a goody two-shoes. Um, is that having written a novel, Pride of Prejudice, with the most vivid and irreverent heroine that had ever been, writ- ever been written in a novel, certainly, and is rivaled only by a few, you know, <laughs> on the stage maybe by a few Shakespeare comic heroines um this extraordinary elizabeth bennett's extraordinary creation and having done that a a a woman a heroine who's not afraid of anybody who will always who will always fight her corner um and who who can laugh at everything um she then sort of it's as if she goes right i've done that okay so the new one is going to have a heroine who most of the time can't speak and nobody pays any attention to and everybody ignores and is put upon and bullied and shy and awkward and at the edge of everything. Um, mm, but mostly right about things. Oh, yes, mostly right. Mostly Whereas right. Whereas Emma is completely in the centre of everything and also yeah. almost always wrong. <laughs> yes, 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 of course. Um but anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, she does something. That's it, you know, something different every time. 
If only yeah. she hadn't died when she was 41, we would have had another 10 novels. Yeah, very sad. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining me, John. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you for indulging me. <laughs> My pleasure. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash 2 for Have a wonderful week. <laughs>